Good morning and welcome to Sun Valley. And, and I do this all the time and, and I love doing it, but we believe in growing faith, uh, community, and hope. And so we just want to reiterate that. We believe in growing, building, and the hope of... The last one should be the easiest one. Uh, we are continuing on with our series today. Uh, and our series is called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And in this, this series, we are going through some of the major and minor stories of the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, and discovering through these stories how the love of Jesus comes through in often unconventional and unexpected ways. And last week, we finished our journey through the books of First and Second Kings. And so this week, we are starting a very short look at the books of First and Second Chronicles. Just a quick survey for, for my own edification. How many of you have actually read through the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles? Raise your hands if you've ever actually read through all those. How many of you guys can keep your hands up? Keep your hands up if you've read through those books. How many of you have read through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles chronologically, like back to back, like one book after the other? You've read them like back to back, just reading like in your reading plan or whatever the case is, maybe throughout the year, not all at once, but you've read them, a couple of you. Let me tell you, you guys are brave. You guys are brave because <laughs> if you don't know uh, much about these stories, uh, it can be quite a tedious endeavor to read through 1 Samuel all the way to 2 Chronicles. Um, the, reason, the reason that it's tedious is because uh, these stories are actually repetitive. They repeat themselves. Uh, and one thing you should know um, is that 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, in the original, they're not actually divided into 1 and 2 books. They're just one big book. And then for the sake of the Bible, for whatever reason, they've divided it into uh, two different books for the Samuel, Kings, and the Chronicles. So for the sake of our sermon, I'm just going to call them Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, so we're not saying 1 and 2 all the time. But for those of you unfamiliar with the content of these books, you might be surprised to know that the Chronicles is actually just a retelling of the same stories that take place in Samuel and Kings. Did you guys know that? The Chronicles is just a retelling of the same exact stories in Samuel and Kings. And in the Chronicles, there are actually some omissions and some additions, so it's not 100% the same word for word, but a large portion of the Chronicles is actually the exact same as Samuel and Kings. And in fact, there are some chapters that are just word for word, the, the same wording as, as Samuel and Kings. And the book of Chronicles was actually written much later than the book of Samuel and Kings. In fact, it's, it's anywhere between 200 and 400 years after the last events in the book of Kings. So we have quite a big time span, quite a big time jump uh, between uh, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. There's about two to 400 years. Um, and next week, we're going to be exploring kind of the themology and the purpose of Chronicles. We're going to explore why there is a, two books in the Bible that repeat the same stories. It's actually a very important story. Uh, so we'll be reading that next week. But for today, we're going to be exploring and comparing two stories, one of them in Chronicles and one of them in Samuel. And so our stories begin today with 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24. So we start our reading with 2 Samuel chapter 24 today. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles uh, to follow along, you can follow along on the screen. Uh, we have the New International Version available for you. So we're starting 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. It says this, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Just pause here for, for those of you who, are, uh, who haven't been with us throughout the whole series. Um, 
If you're reading in your Bible, you might notice that Lord has a capital L and a capital O-R-D, and usually the O-R-D are a little smaller than the L, but it's all cap, caps lock letters, I guess you can call it. Uh, and so whenever we have this, uh, so if you jump down to the end of verse 3, he says, but why does my Lord the King want to do such a thing? You'll notice Lord is all lowercase versus the top Lord is all uppercase. There's a difference in the Bible. The lowercase Lord is just the Adonai, and so it's just a, a word meaning master. But the uh, uppercase, the, low, the, the all uppercase Lord is the proper noun, the, the proper name for the God of Israel, which is Yahweh. And so whenever you see Lord in all capitals, uh, you know they're specifically saying Yahweh the name Yahweh, but when they have Lord in, in lowercase, it's Adonai, which is typically just uh, a master or ruler. So here we go. Uh, verse one again. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab uh, and, the, uh, and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from the very top of the, the, the north to the south and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over. May the eyes of my Lord, master the king, see it. But why does my Lord, the master the king, want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab, who was the army commander, and the other army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Now we're going to take a look at the same verses in 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles 21 um, says this, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba, Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over my Lord the king. Are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. So you'll notice there are a few differences already in just the introduction of the story in these first four verses. David's command, uh, while the same, is expressed a little differently in, in 1 Chronicles 21. Joab's response as well is a little longer in 1 Chronicles 21 than it was in 2 Samuel 24. But you might notice there is one significant difference that is marked between Samuel and Chronicles. One significant difference, um, and the difference is this. The one who incites David to sin is different in 2 Samuel than it is in the Chronicles. Interesting, right? So in Samuel, Samuel writes, or whoever the author of Samuel is, writes, it is the Lord Yahweh who incites David to sin, but Chronicles says it is Satan or Satan who incites David to sin. It is the same story, but this minor change brings serious implications. And so something you need to know about the ancient Israelite worldview in order to understand this better. The Israelites believed that Yahweh, this Lord, this God that they served, was the supreme God. He was the supreme deity. Everything that came from Yahweh, whether good or bad, came from God. All right? So good spirits and evil spirits came from Yahweh. That's what the Israelites used to believe. And so if you read the story of 1 Samuel all the way to 2 Kings, you'll notice that there are a couple of instances where the story says an evil spirit from the Lord came and did such and such a thing. So for example, in 1 Samuel 16, you might remember the story where Saul gets angry with David and then throws a spear at him. It says in the story that an evil spirit from the Lord came 
and came upon Saul and drove him to do this thing. And then also in, in 1 Kings 22, uh, when Micaiah the prophet has to prophesy before the king of Israel, you'll notice that there's the 400 prophets all prophesying, go ahead, go to war, go to victory, the Lord will give you the victory. But Micaiah says, no, don't go because Yahweh isn't with you. Uh, it says in the story that an evil, evil spirit from the Lord came unto the 400 prophets and led them to deceive the king, to lie to the king. Right? So one thing that's important is that in the ancient mindset for the Israelites, from Genesis to the end of Kings, uh, it was God who directed both good and evil. So in Genesis to Kings, there is no Satan. There is no devil. There is no Lucifer, at least not the way that we understand it now. Not until this point in 1 Chronicles 21. This is interesting. The Hebrew word that is used here in 1 Chronicles 20 word is this word Satan or Satan, right? It's, it's this Hebrew word, and it's used in the Old Testament a total of 26 different times. And the word in general means adversary or opposition. So anybody who opposes you, anyone who stands in your way, is a Satan. That's just a Hebrew word. It's just a general word, right? So uh, the way that the books are arranged in the Bible, um, the, the, before 1 Chronicles 21, it's only used seven times, this word Satan. Before 1 Chronicles 21, it is only ever used seven times in the Bible. And specifically, those seven times, it is just meaning adversary. It's not this proper noun. Do you guys know what a proper noun is? Proper noun is like a name, right? An identifier, a marker. Um, so in the first seven times, anywhere from Genesis to 2 Kings, uh, this, this Satan word is just, a, uh, it's just adversary. It's just opposition. It doesn't mean a proper noun. It doesn't identify a particular being or entity or whatever. It is just an opposition. But the remaining 19 times after 1 Chronicles 21, it is specifically used as a proper noun. After this moment in 1 Chronicles 21, it's no longer used as just the general adversary or opposition. It is specifically used as a proper noun, a name or a title to identify the entity or being that is the adversary or opposition to God. That's what the word Satan, Satan means. So at some point in time, during the Babylonian and Persian captivities, there is a shift in the Israelite theology that begins to include and identify another being in the spiritual conflict. This is the being that we've come to know now in, in Christianity as Lucifer or Satan or the devil, right? And so this is our very first lesson today. Our first lesson is this. There is an adversary. There is an adversary. You see, this change in the story, although technically small, has huge implications. Because in Samuel, we understand God to be the one who moves David to sin. But now in Chronicles, we understand that it wasn't God who moved David to sin, but rather this Satan, this adversary, whoever this adversary is. And the theology would be developed later on as the Israelites experience uh, further captivity and, and to the time of Jesus where they would identify this fallen angel. But it is through this shift in Israelite theology that both they and us come to understand that there is a secondary entity or party that is working for evil in the world. So while God works for good, there is an adversary that works for evil. And this small detail changes the way that we interpret every other story before 1 Chronicles 21. You see, when the biblical authors write, they, they, they write with the belief 
that it was God who directly caused the destruction of his people. But now, through this change and shift in theology, we can now interpret to understand that it wasn't necessarily God destroying his people so much as God respecting the choices of his people and allowing them to succumb to the consequences of those choices. So if the Israelites decided we don't want anything to do with Yahweh, we don't want anything to do with God, we don't want the protection and the blessing that God provides, God says, all right, that is how free will works. If you don't want to be in relationship with me, I will respect your decision. I won't force myself upon you. So God steps back and allows them to experience what life is like without God. He's respecting their decision. So what does life look like without God? They're then subject to the chaos, the sin, the destruction, the defeat, the death that this adversary brings. So we understand this moment right here in 1 Chronicles 21 is just revolutionary. It changes the way that the Israelites used to interpret the Bible. Sin and chaos and death and destruction are not the work of God like the Israelites once believed, like some of us might still believe. The work of God rather is compassion and mercy and grace and forgiveness, and restoration exclusively. So whatever good you experience, that comes from God. But whatever bad you experience, that isn't from God. Pain and suffering, that's the adversary. Sorrow and grief, that's the adversary. Sin and temptation, that's the adversary. Chaos and death, that's the adversary. It's not from God because there is an adversary. The shift changes the way we read the story. And then we re- keep reading First Chronicles 21. It says this command, verse 7, was so evil in the sight of God that he punished Israel. That's what the author of Chronicles writes. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant, for I have done a very foolish thing. And the Lord said to Gad, David's seer, go and tell David this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says, take your choice. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away by your, before your enemies with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of the plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 24, verse, 13, verse 14. Now David responds, said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of time designated, and 70,000 of the men from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then, then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. This would later be the site of um, the temple in Jerusalem. That's why it's important to the Chronicles and Samuel. But in both Samuel and Chronicles, David realizes that he's done something wrong. He realizes, I have sinned in doing this, and so he repents. But unfortunately, what he's done has already been accomplished. The deed's already been done. The census has already been taken. So God gives him three choices. He says, you can take your punishment, whichever one you want, three years of famine, three months of being defeated by your enemies, or three days of plague in the land. And David doesn't want three years of famine because he's afraid that the people will have to turn to other nations to buy food, 
eventually run out of money and then sell themselves into slavery and then repeat the same mistakes that Jacob and their descendants had done in Egypt. That's what happened to Jacob and descendants. That's how all that whole family line ended up as slaves in Israel because there was a famine. They sold themselves now into Egyptian slavery and they were slaves for 400 years. David doesn't want that same mistake being repeated, so he doesn't want that. David doesn't want three months of being defeated by his enemies because he knows that his enemies are ruthless and merciless. Remember, David is the warrior king. David is the one who kills 10,000 warriors. David is the one who slays Goliath. So if he's left to the hands of his enemies, his enemies will have no mercy on David. So he doesn't want that. But David chooses three days of plague in the land, not just because it's the shortest period of punishment, but because he knows that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he says, I don't want to be at the hands of everyone else. Let me be at the hands of God because God is merciful. So he chooses instead to rely on God's mercy than the mercy of his enemies and the surrounding nations. So the story says that the plague goes out, kills unfortunately 70,000 men before God's mercy leads him to stop the plague. You see, the plague affects the very people that David was counting. David, David was counting the military men aged 20 and up in Israel. Who does the plague affect? the men in Israel. The same way that the angel of death affected the firstborns in Egypt, the same mistakes are being repeated here again in Israel. But to understand the punishment, because it seems weird, you have to understand the sin. Because to us, it, it might not be so clear why this whole thing is even a sin in the first place, right? But there are a few reasons that, the, that this whole census thing was wrong. One, David was specifically counting the men to determine two different things. The first thing is how many fighting men there would be so that he could conscript them into forced military service. Two, David wanted to know how many men there would be because he wanted to levy further taxes on his people, right? Both of these things were means of solidifying David's dynasty and kingdom. He wanted to increase his political power, increase his army and his strength, increase the, the amount of finances that he had in his kingdom, and then thus rely on God less. You guys following so far? Right? This is the very reason why Saul was no longer God's elected king, because he relied on his military strength, he relied on his financial prowess, and put God aside. That's why God rejected Saul as king. David is trying to repeat the same mistakes. But the very reason, this other, sorry, this other reason that this thing was a sin was because it went directly against what God had told them not to do. A census was carried out, and the citizens and, and property were counted, and at the same time, Conducting a census was this idea that whatever you counted was yours. You only counted the things that were yours. Of course, you wouldn't count everybody else's things because they're not yours. So you provide a census or you perform a census to count the people and the property that belong to you. That's the idea of a census in this time. So what David is essentially saying is, I own these people, I own this property, I own this land, it's all mine. So he's counting exactly what is his. And so he's rejecting this idea that everything belongs to God, that these people are God's people, that this property is God's property, that this land is God's land. So to carry out a census under one's own discretion was to challenge the place of God as Israel's ruler, but also to challenge this idea and this promise that God had given Abraham a long time ago that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars. That's the promise. The whole foundation of the nation of Israel is this idea. So to count these people would be to count God's promise and go against and challenge this idea that God would be faithful. So there were only a few censuses done in Israel. 
One, uh, or actually both of them were done by, by God, led by Moses. He had specifically told them to count the people for the very reason of providing uh, uh, money and, and, and finances to be able to support and, and construct the tabernacle and sanctuary systems. So if you read in Exodus 30, when God says there is a census to be done, he specifically says that when you count the people, every person is to give a shekel as an offering and a ransom for their lives. That's the wording that, that God uses to remove the guilt, very specifically, of the census being taken. God implicitly says there is a guilt to a census being taken, but we are conducting it for the sake of the sanctuary, so everyone gives an offering to remove the guilt of the census being taken. And then he says in, in, in Exodus 30, he says, if a census is done without this offering, without this direction from myself, then unfortunately there will be a plague in Israel. So God specifically says, don't take a census. There will be a plague. All right? What does David do? takes a census. What's the result? A plague. See, David's choice led to the many deaths of all of these people, 70,000 men, but God's intervention, the story specifically says, brought an end to the suffering. This is our second lesson for today. Our second lesson is this. Suffering is not God's work. Suffering is not God's work. We've already learned through Chronicles that there is a secondary party involved in this whole cosmic spiritual conflict, that the secondary party opposes God. It opposes everything that is God, goodness, mercy, forgiveness, uh, compassion, justice, life itself. It opposes all of this. The suffering that occurs is the work of the adversary and the result of sin. So when David sins through the census, that he calls for, we have to understand that the natural repercussion of that sin would be the very punishment that God had warned them about back in Exodus through Moses, right? So these people suffered not because God necessarily just arbitrarily gave them this punishment. These people suffered because of the choices of their king. Suffering is not God's punishment so much as it is the consequences of the choices that people make, right? And sometimes it doesn't seem fair. But unfortunately, that's the inherent byproduct of the mix of sin and free will. When one person's free will conflicts with another's, there's pain and suffering. When one person freely exercises their choice to commit heinous and evil acts, other people suffer. And we've talked about this idea a few times that sin doesn't just affect us. It doesn't just affect humanity. Sin affects all of God's creation from the very smallest cell to the entire planet's ecosystem. Our health problems, diseases, natural disasters, the state of the world's current political climate problems are all a result of a world full of people deciding to put their own personal gain, profit, and ideology over the benefit and the love of the community around them. And we are often tempted to blame God or, or question God when we experience hurt or when we, are, when we are the victims of this great evil and injustice. But one of the things that we have to remember, something the Bible shows us again and again and again, is that suffering is not God's work. Suffering isn't God's work. This is, this is Newton's third law of physics. I had to Google this because I wasn't sure, but this is it. Newton's third law of physics is that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. You guys have heard that from like science 10 or whenever that was, right? 15 years ago for some of you. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Punishment is not God's reaction to our sins. Punishment is the equal and opposite reaction that sin itself creates. Right? That's what Romans says. That's what Paul says. The consequences, the punishment of sin is death. 
But the gift that God gives is what? Eternal life, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, right? You see, God had given his people a warning of what would happen should they choose to sin. So when David sins through the census, the natural punishment is given. It's laid out in Exodus. But the work of God was mercy. The work of God was the compassion. The work of God wasn't the sending of the plague, but the work of God was the command to stop the plague even before the three days were up. Suffering is not God's work. The work of God is mercy and forgiveness, restoration of relationships, not the breaking of them. The work of God is the preservation of life, not the taking of it. Suffering is not God's work. And even throughout the Bible, we see this shift in the way that people interpret their own story. The theology of Chronicles is clearly different than the theology of Samuel. The theology you'll find the time of Moses, the belief of God is, is vastly different than the times of Isaiah and Jeremiah. The authors of the Bible don't necessarily have a consistent interpretation and understanding of God because as they come to experience God more, as they enter into deeper relationship with God, they come to know God better. Yes, following. So there are people who like to point out these differences, not just in this story, but throughout the Bible, and they point them out as inconsistencies and try to use them to discredit the Bible. Look, these, these stories contradict themselves. But this apparent contradiction isn't a contradiction at all. It's actually an evolution of faith. The longer you are in relationship with a person, the deeper you understand that person, Right? So for example, for those of you who are married, you know this, my wife and I have, have been married for just a little under a year and a half. The way I understand her and know her is differently now than I did a year and a half ago, right? And so the way that I love her now is different than a year and a half ago. My love for her now is not a contradiction of the love I had a year and a half ago. It's an evolution of that love. You guys following so far, right? So the way you see things differently isn't necessarily a contradiction of the past. It is an evolution. It is, it, it, it is the determination or it is the sign of a growing and living relationship, right? The story of the Bible isn't static. It changes. It adapts because it is a story. It is the account of a growing and living relationship. Faith is ever-growing. Faith is ever-shifting. It grows and it deepens and it changes as you experience God fully. And the author of Chronicles saw God a little differently than the author of Samuel. And this is our final lesson for today. Our final lesson is this. See God differently. Your perspective now might not change in leaps and bounds. The difference between Samuel and Chronicles is two to 400 years. That's a lot of time to develop a different theology. But as you experience God more, your faith changes. You may come to see God differently than you did a month ago, than you did a year ago, than you did a decade ago. There's a term coined in, in, in Christian doctrine. It's called progressive revelation. It's this idea that as time progresses, as your relationship with God deepens, God reveals himself more fully and more clearly than he did in the past. And so as we read the Bible from beginning to end, the story progresses in this understanding of God as we come to a better relationship, a better understanding with God. Don't let your relationship with God remain static. Open yourself up to experiencing God more, experiencing God differently. Let the way you see God today change the way you interpret your story yesterday. I invite the band to come on up as we begin to close. Let your pain and your suffering be seen in the light and the context of the mercy and compassion 
and grace of Jesus. See God differently. Don't let your outdated and misconstrued notions of God get in the way of a deeper relationship. Don't let pain and hurt keep you from seeing God's mercy and goodness. Remember that there is an adversary. There is a secondary entity working for evil in the world. But whatever trials and tribulations, whatever pains and hurts, whatever sorrows and discomforts that you go through, understand that those are not God. God is not behind the pain. God is not the cause of the pain, but he is behind that good that comes from it. God is behind the strength that you gain through the adversity. God is behind the healing that you experience after the grief and sorrow. God is behind the unexpected calm after the storm. But we have nothing to fear of the secondary entity. We have nothing to fear from this adversary because light always expels darkness. Good always overcomes evil, and the hope that we experience through the death and the resurrection of Jesus is that no matter what happens in this life, there is a promise of a new life in him. That's the work of Jesus, restoration and salvation. Suffering is not God's work. And while the chaos that we experience now is often the result of things set in motion through the actions and decisions of sinful people like ourselves, we find that God works in the mercy. God is not the destroyer. He's not the executioner. He's not the angry, violent, and vindictive God that some people make him out to be. He is the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And this is my favorite part, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, God's work is the good that we see in the world. So allow your faith to be changed by an ever-growing relationship with Jesus. Allow yourself to see God differently. You know, one of the great things about retrospect, about looking back, is the ability to see more clearly. Looking back, we come to see the good that comes out of the trying times. Looking back, we come to understand the moments where we used to have tons of questions. As you grow in relationship with God, you begin to see your past in the light of God's goodness in the present. Even the moments that hurt now will one day become moments of praise. So through whatever you've gone through, through whatever you're going through, or whatever you will eventually go through, give God the opportunity to help you see him differently. See your story not through the lens of pain and suffering, but through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the lens of his mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. Let the story of the risen King Jesus change the way you see your story. Amen.